What a joy it is to sing with you, to worship with you, to praise our Lord and Savior on this day. We've heard good testimonies already. We've heard from the Word of God in Scripture reading, but now we hear from the Word of God in preaching. And what we do here is we read a text, we open up that text as I, as I preach to you, and apply that text. And your role in all of this is to take that in, to believe the Word of God, and to do as it says. And we'll see today, there is very little for us to do because God has already done it for us. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans. We return to the expository series on Romans that we've been in for some time. And I want to open up Romans 10, 5 to 8. Romans 10, 5 to 8 for you this morning. And the sermon is entitled, What Does the Righteousness of Faith Say? A lot of people have their thoughts on religion. A lot of people have their opinions, and they say a lot about their beliefs. But what does God's Word say about righteousness and faith? And in this text, we'll see Paul even personifies the righteousness of faith as speaking to us from God's Word. God's Word speaks a message to us. Romans 10, I'm going to start in verse 4 so you can see the context, because 5 is connected to 4. Romans 10, 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness, which is of law. The man who does these things shall live by them. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will go up into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or he will go down into the abyss. That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. If you've ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you'll be familiar with the story in Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan about a man named Christian who's read the Bible. He's convicted of his sin. He suddenly realizes he has this burden on his back. It's too heavy to bear. It's crushing him. It's a burden that he wants to get rid of. And so he meets a man named Evangelist, which is Jesus, I think. And he now gets on the path to have that removed. He needs to go to the wicked gate And he needs to meet evangelists there who will then remove the burden from his back. But he gets distracted along the way. He hears about another way to get the burden removed. He hears about a nearby village named Morality. Where there's a man whose name is Legality. Who is said to have some skill at removing burdens of sin from men's backs. And so it says, Christian turned out of his way to go to Mr. Legality's house for help. But behold, when he got near the hill on which it was situated, it seemed so high. And the side of it was next to the wayside, and it did hang so much over that Christian was afraid to venture farther, lest the hill should fall on his head. Thus he stood still and knew not what to do. Also his burden now seemed heavier on him. Then while he was in his way, there came also flashes of fire out of the hill that made Christian afraid that he should be burned. Here, therefore, he did sweat and quake for fear. Now, Evangelist shows up and meets him there. 
And he comes to him, and Christian is shamed. He's ashamed of turning away from the path. And evangelist asks Christian, Are you not the man that I found crying without the walls of the city of destruction? And Christian says, Yes, dear sir, I am that man. And evangelist says, Did I not direct you to the way to the little wicked gate? Evangelist told him the way to go. And Christian says, Yes, dear sir. And so evangelist, Jesus, asked, How is it then that you have so quickly turned aside? For you are now out of the way. There's only one way of salvation. That's what John Bunyan is opening up in this passage. And how many times do people turn away from what they hear as the true gospel to a gospel of legality, a gospel of morality, a gospel of obedience? Somehow, if they can just obey the law, they will be saved. Well, the Bible is not just a book of theological facts or a book of historical facts, but the Bible has a message, a message from God to us. And that message is to trust in Him and Him alone for salvation through Jesus Christ, His Son. That's the message. That's the only way of salvation. That's what Paul's been talking about in the book of Romans since he started this book and since we've been hearing sermons on it for a couple of years now. Paul wants people to know about the one way of salvation. And then he wants believers to know and remember what Christ has done for us and remind us of what God is doing in the world as the gospel goes out. And Paul's a part of that. He takes the gospel to the Gentiles, to the world. So the Bible has a message. And this message is about faith, which leads to righteousness. How many times do we get it backwards? We think righteousness leads to faith, which leads to salvation. But faith comes, and then we get the imputed righteousness of God. To set the context for our passage here, you'll remember that Paul opened up in chapter 9 this big question, what about Israel? That's great that God can save us. Chapter 8 of Romans, wonderful, Paul. Love it. It's our favorite chapter many times. But what about Israel? You made all these promises to Israel, and they didn't seemed to believe in Jesus when he came. And so Paul's been answering this question. Chapters 9, chapter 10, he answers it in chapter 11. So 9 through 11 is the answer to what about Israel? The first answer Paul gave in chapter 9, we looked at this, is that God has not elected, he's not chosen every single Israelite. God makes a choice, whether it's an Israelite or a Gentile, God makes a choice. Some have been saved already. Some Jews have been saved by believing in Christ for salvation, and others have not. And so Paul defends that answer. The second answer that we started in chapter 9, verse 30, the second part of the answer is, not everyone believes in Christ. Why haven't they been saved? Well, God hasn't chosen them, yes, but also man has responsibility to believe. Man has a responsibility when they hear the gospel to believe in Jesus Christ and believe in all that he's done for us for salvation. And Paul has been opening up this answer and explaining what it means to have faith in Christ. So in our passage today, he now goes back to the Old Testament again to teach us something. Here he teaches us three ways the Old Testament teaches us about the righteousness of faith. There's three things that are in the first five books of the Bible, in the book of Moses, as the Jews would call it that teach us about the righteousness of faith. 
And that's the book that all Jews, whether it was a Sadducee or a Pharisee, everyone agreed in Paul's day that that is the Bible. The Sadducees would reject the rest of the Old Testament, but they agree the first five books were God's word. And of course, the Pharisees accepted what we call the Old Testament, the whole thing. But as we'll see, they did not believe the truth about faith in Messiah. So three ways the Old Testament teaches us about this righteousness that comes from faith. First of all, the first way, we need to understand what the scripture says in context. Paul doesn't say this explicitly, but we're going to see that's an issue in verse 5 here. If we don't understand what's going on in verse 5, we're going to get a lot of things wrong in this passage. Here's what Paul says. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of law. Now, the way this verse connects back to verse 4 is Paul is telling us about Christ as the end of the law. Christ is the completion of it. Christ is the perfect goal that the law was pointing people to. The law is like a tutor. It drives us to Christ because it shows us our sin. We compare ourselves to God's standard in the law. We see that we're sinful. We look, we look for now a Savior, and God has provided one in Christ. That's the law's purpose. That's why God gave it. And so it is to teach us about God's way of salvation. Well, Paul now cites that Moses has written this. Moses has written, we know, the first five books of the Bible. And what Paul's going to do is contrast what every Jew of his day believed, and they would point to a verse in Leviticus to support their view. Now, every Jew in his day believed that you could be saved by your own righteousness. Every Jew, that is, until they came to faith in Christ. Then their view was radically, of course, changed. But what the Pharisees taught is that you could obey the law, or you should, even if you couldn't do it perfectly, you should try as hard as you could, and maybe, just maybe, you would be good enough whenever you met God on Judgment Day. It's basically, in some sense, what many Americans believe. That if I'm good enough, God will look at my good, and he'll look at my bad, which is not that bad, but my good's really good, and then he'll let me into heaven. Well, they had a more sophisticated way of saying it back then, and they would point to a scripture to back it up. So Moses wrote it, but Paul refers to it. This is interesting the way he says it. It is as the righteousness which is of law. Now that's a subtle hint because it should awaken you to say, wait a second, pastor, you've been preaching for a while now from Romans and it clearly says there is no true righteousness which comes from obeying the law, which comes from our works. That's not the way God has set it up. So that's a subtle hint here that he's talking about their self-righteousness. And we saw this in the context, just a few verses. Go back to verse 3 of chapter 10. He says the Jews not knowing about the righteousness of God. That's, that's the true righteousness. The righteousness that comes to us through Christ because he's perfect. And when we have faith in him, his perfect account of living a righteous life gets transferred to our account. That's the righteousness of God. But they didn't know about that. They, they knew about Jesus. They, they heard the preaching, but they rejected him. And it says, seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. They were seeking to establish their own. Well, how were they doing that? Well, they were trying to obey the law. Be good enough. Be good enough. And then we'll be saved. And Paul just ends that argument and says, Christ is the end of the law. If you really cared about the law, you would see where it pointed. 
And he says in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. So what were they seeking to establish? Their own righteousness. They were self-righteous. So Paul has said, Moses writes about this righteousness which is of law. That's the way they would refer to it. A righteousness which comes from obeying the law. And I quote Leviticus 18.5. You see, the man who does these things shall live by them. It's probably in all caps because in your translation, they're trying to say that comes from the Old Testament. And it does. It comes from Leviticus 18.5. Now, many people take this verse to mean that it's possible, although no one can do it, but it's possible to earn eternal life by obeying the law. That it's possible. And that's what the Jews were striving to do. They were trying to, to get as close as they could to that possibility. So therefore, there are two ways to salvation. You obey the law perfectly or you trust in Jesus. That's what they would have thought. Some people think that today. It's called the dual covenant or bicovenantal belief system. Yet Paul's not saying that here. Let's look at what he's saying. He's simply quoting a verse from the Old Testament. He gives us a hint, the righteousness of law, which connects back to verse 3. Their self-righteousness they're trying to obtain. But Paul's not saying if you obey the law perfectly, you will have eternal life. We know, first of all, he's not saying that because Moses didn't say that in Leviticus 18. That's not what Moses said. Moses said what Paul quoted here, but what the Jews heard is, the man who does these things shall have eternal life by them. What Moses actually said is, the man who does these things shall live by them. So let's now go back and see the context, which every Jew would have known. And Paul is throwing this out at them and saying, examine your own views on this. Understand scripture correctly. That's how you did it in ancient times. You just cited a verse. And in the Jewish mindset, they would think of all that around uh, the verse, all the context. You see, they didn't have verses. They didn't even have chapters. So you cited a verse that a Jew had memorized the whole book of Leviticus and they would know in their mind what's going on in that section. So 18.5, if you go back there, the context here is that the Jews are going to be living in the land. God has brought them out of Egypt. He's going to put them in the land. And he's giving them these commands. They need to obey God or he's going to punish them. He's going to send them into exile. So he gives them commands. And if you're tracking with uh, Leviticus 18 here, that's the context. That God is in a covenant relationship with his people Israel. He's commanded them to obey his word, his commandments. If they do so, they'll remain in the land. They'll live in the land. They'll live in this life in the land and be fruitful and receive the produce from the land and receive blessings from God. Look at Leviticus 18 verse 1. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel, say to them, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not do according to what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived. Okay, they were not having eternal life in Egypt. They were having this temporal life in Egypt. They were under oppression. They lived there and God says, don't do that. Nor are you going to do according to what is done in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Don't do what the Canaanites are doing when you get there. Don't do what the pagans are doing. You're my people. I redeemed you. I saved you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to do my judgments and keep my statutes to walk in them. I am Yahweh, your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man does them, he shall live by them. I am Yahweh. And then he goes into the commandments. None of you shall approach any blood relative 
of his to uncover nakedness. I am Yahweh. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father. And he just goes line by line through the law here. So that's the context. The context is Israel living in the land. God is holy. He saved these people. Now they should live like it. Does that sound familiar with the New Testament? Under the new covenant? See, this is the old covenant, but there are principles that carry over. God has saved us spiritually. We ought to live like it. We ought to obey the commands that he's given us, that Christ has told us to live by. And so the law was given originally to this group so that they would see the standard of God. They've been saved by God. They're to live it out and God would bless them in the land. They would live. They would be holy like I am holy, God said. That's what he commands them to do. Be holy like I am holy. That's the theme verse of Leviticus. It's about God's holiness. And they're to live it out because God lives among them. He, he's with them. He's dwelling with them in the tabernacle. So we come to Leviticus 18.5. And he tells them, as long as you obey, you will live in the land. He's not talking about salvation. He's not talking about eternal life. To become God's people. No, he's talking about here. Not to become God's people. They're already God's people. He's saying, to remain in God's blessing, you must live by these laws. Because you're my people, you must obey. See, the Jews of Paul's day, though, they said, you must obey to be God's people. They got it backwards. They were saying, you must obey to be God's people. But God said to them in Leviticus, because you already are my people, you must obey now. You must follow my commands. Here's how Daniel Block says it written a great commentary on Deuteronomy. He says, The law of Moses was not given as a means of salvation, but as the grateful response of those who had already been saved. Already been saved. Leviticus 18.5 is tied to the obedience of the law, which brings life in the land, not eternal life. But by the time you get to the first century, the Jews are teaching that it gives you eternal life. We know this. Because later in Leviticus 28, 18, you shall thus observe my statutes and keep my judgments, God says, so as to do them, that you may live securely on the land. The obedience is tied to living in the land. We know the story of Israel. What happens when they disobey? What happens? They get taken away to exile. It doesn't mean that everybody who went to exile was, was an unbeliever and didn't have faith. I mean, Daniel is a perfect picture of faith. And he gets taken away into exile as a young person. No, but as a nation, they had disobeyed God. They had broken his commandments. So Leviticus 18.5 is a key text for the history of Israel because it will then show them later why God brought his punishment. Why? Because they disobeyed. They said, oh yeah, we're your people. They say that in Exodus. Oh yeah, the, you know, today we have baptisms and these two are going to say, we're Christ. Christ owns us. Well, they didn't have baptism in the Old Testament, but they had something called Mount Sinai. And God came down with fire and he gave the law and Moses read the law. And you know what they said? Amen, brother. Amen. We're all God's people here. And then they went and worshiped the golden calf and did other things. Well, this was given to tell them they could live in the land. We know this. If you know where it's at and you want to go there, Ezekiel 20, Ezekiel 20, verse 11, points back to this. The prophets call Israel to go back to God's law. They're now in exile. 
they've been taken away from the land. Why? Because they weren't obeying the commandments of God. So Exodus 20.11, see if this sounds familiar. God says, I gave them my statutes. I made them know my judgments, which if a man does them, he will live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. That's what Paul's quoting in Romans 10.5. Now go to verse 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes and they rejected my judgments, which if a man does them, he will live by them. That's Leviticus 18.5. Ezekiel saying, you all know why you're here. Here's what God says. He says you're here because you did not live by them. You did not obey God's commands. Also again repeated the third time in this chapter in verse 21 of Ezekiel 20. But the children rebelled against me. They did not walk in my statutes, nor were they careful to do my judgments, which if a man does them, he will live by them. They profaned my Sabbaths. So that's why they were exiled. Again, just in case, when they come back after the exile, they're back in the land. Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall. Once again, Nehemiah 9.29, just in case they didn't get it with Ezekiel, God says, and you testified, this is Nehemiah speaking, you testified to them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not listen to your commandments, Lord, but sinned against your judgments, by which if a man does them, he shall live. And they gave a stubborn shoulder and they stiffened their neck and would not listen. So when Paul quotes Leviticus 18, 5 in Romans, he knows what Moses is talking about. He knows the context. The Jews know the context too, but they seem to not care and have turned this into some kind of be obedient gospel and earn your righteousness. No, Paul is quoting this verse to show them, I know your arguments because he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I know your arguments and I know you look to this verse and I agree Moses wrote it, he said. But he's about to tell us what else Moses wrote in the following verses. So why is he quoting it? Again, because the Jews of Jesus' day understood in their minds, they thought this verse was about eternal life. That's what they chose to make it about. That's how they twisted it. And Tom Schreiner on his commentary says the reference here is influenced by the, the exegesis of Paul's opponents, the Jewish rabbis, who argued that the law was the source of life. We can also look at ancient records and see what they believed right before this time and right after, which you can assume in between those two, it's the same belief system. Here's from the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha, not scripture, but something written by a man, and it's called the Psalms of Solomon, first and second century BC. And it says, to those who live in the righteousness of his commandments in the law, which he has commanded for our life. There the idea is eternal life. So this Psalms of Solomon represents a Jewish belief that you could follow the law and receive this righteousness by obeying the law. After Paul's day, a couple of generations after, around 100-110 AD, something called a Targum gets written by a man who had been converted from a Roman Gentile. He's converted now to Judaism and he loves Judaism so much he wants to translate it from Hebrew to Aramaic. And he kind of paraphrases. It's like the Message Bible today, right? It's a paraphrase, not a real translation. 
His name is Onkelos, and he translates or paraphrases into this Targum. But he takes this verse, he translates the first five books of Moses. Here's how he translates Leviticus 18.5. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live by them an everlasting life. Not just live in the land, you see, but they've now added the everlasting part. Obey the law, you'll get everlasting life. Do your best to obey the law because they would admit no one's perfect and you'll have everlasting life. But righteousness, the righteousness of God cannot come from law. The law incites people to sin due to their own sinfulness. Romans 5.20. Now the law came in so that transgressions would increase. Romans 7.5 I've read to you recently. Romans 7, 7 through 13 is all about this. Philippians 3.6. As to the righteousness which is in the law... Paul said, I was found blameless. Paul says, when I was an unbeliever, when I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, oh, I could pat myself on the back. But he truly did not have the righteousness of God. He was admitting later when he wrote to the Philippians, there was no righteousness found in the law. It was in Christ alone. That was his unconverted days. In fact, Philippians 3.9, I count all these things, including trying to obey the law, to be lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And then he goes into Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. All my past is gone. Just like we heard in the testimonies today. That's changed. That's gone. That's, my life is different now. He says, I count them as rubbish. They're good for the trash heap. You know, they're, they're good for the sewer. That's what all that stuff in my past was good for. It didn't earn me anything. And he says, not having a righteousness of my own which is from law. Paul's really clear. He thought he had a righteousness. Then he got saved and he says, I had no righteousness of my own from the law. That's his testimony in Philippians. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God upon faith. So we need to understand why he's quoting Leviticus. We need to understand it in context because we're not Jews living in Paul's day. They would have understood that as soon as he cites it, especially based on what he's about to say. Number two, the second thing that we're taught here is stop working for it. God has done it all. Stop working for it. Now, there's a lot of intricate arguing from the Old Testament and what's Paul doing here. And a lot of people struggle with this. It is difficult, but it all boils down to stop working for it. God has done it all. Stop trying so hard to save yourself when God has done it all. So he says, Moses wrote Leviticus, and you're claiming that it's righteousness that comes from the law. But, contrast, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. You see in verse 6, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Now, we learn from 10.3 that the righteousness of God is one way. That's the righteousness of faith. And then they thought they had their own way. So there's two ways in people's minds. Well, there's what Paul is proclaiming, and there's what the rabbis and the Pharisees are proclaiming. Two different gospels. Your own way of salvation versus God's way. I'll take God's way. You know, I'll take God's way. But I know that Christ has to change a heart to believe that. But it is our responsibility to believe. Now, Paul's not going to tell them, he's not going to tell them what the righteousness of faith says first, he's going to say, here's what it does not say. So he told them what their verse is. And now he quotes from the same author, Moses, from the Pentateuch, 
which they all look to. And he's going to say, righteousness of faith speaks. And it speaks, what, first of all, what you shouldn't believe. Basically, it boils down to stop working for it. And then later in verse 8, he'll tell us what it does say. So here's what it doesn't say. And he's going to quote from the Old Testament to say what you shouldn't think in your heart. What you shouldn't think in your heart. And he's going to quote Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14. If you look at Romans 10, verses 6, verses 7, and verses 8, match up with Deuteronomy 30, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 14. Now he will insert Deuteronomy 9, 4 to kind of start this off and get everybody focusing on their heart. Now he's not correcting Leviticus 18.5. That's important. He's not saying Moses said this in Leviticus and Moses said this in Deuteronomy. And they're fighting against one another. That makes no sense. That's ridiculous. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. This is the same author, Moses, and the same ultimate author, God. So these verses, Paul, is what he's doing, he's saying these verses go together. And you Jews who take Leviticus 18.5 and misinterpret it, well, how do you deal with Deuteronomy 30? How do you put those verses together? What's your theology is what he's asking. Now, we're used to arguing in a different way today. If somebody comes to us, usually this is how we handle it. Somebody comes to us and they say, well, here's my interpretation. And you say, well, let's study the passage, right? Get out the Bible. I'm going to show you the context like I just did in Leviticus 18. I'm going to show you some things about who wrote it, what God said before it, cross-reference after it, look at some Hebrew words. We're going to look at the grammar. That's not how they argued in Paul's day. They didn't sit around and talk about that. They decided another verse that seemed to oppose it by the same author. That's what Paul's doing here. It's shorthand. It's a shorthand argument. And the way that the rabbis argued, the way they argued was to correct a wrong view, they would cite another text. They would cite another text. So you don't focus on correcting your opponent and his bad interpretation. You just force them to face what the Bible says elsewhere. Now that's not normally how we argue, especially as you get into studying the Bible. But sometimes we do. Somebody comes up to you and they say, election is not in the Bible. Election is not in the Bible. Well, you have a choice to make. How are you going to help this person understand? You could argue and define election. You could talk about how God elected Israel as a nation. You could do a Bible survey of election. You could talk about how God elected Jacob over Esau. You could cite Augustine. You could cite Luther. You could cite Calvin. You could cite John MacArthur. You could go through the word meanings. What does elect mean? Or you could just say, God's word in Romans 8.38 says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? You could do it quick like that. Right? That's one way to argue. You're done. You've made the point. You're moving on to something much more vital to this person's salvation. You know, our, our street preaching brothers who go over to Fredericksburg, when they're preaching these snippets of the gospel as people walk by or sit down and listen, they're not going into the context of the book. They're not doing a Bible survey. They're not going into word studies. No, they just proclaim the truth of scriptures and let God's word do the work. That's what Paul's doing here. He's arguing like a Jewish rabbi would argue. Jewish readers are trusting in their own righteousness before God. And he's just going to throw some other verses at them by the same author in Deuteronomy and say, here's what the righteousness of faith says. In other words, they're supposed to realize, oh, we've got Leviticus 18 wrong. We've got it wrong. So here's how he starts. Deuteronomy 9.4. He takes a little snippet there. Do not say in your heart. Do not say in your heart. To any Jews reading Paul here in this part of his letter, 
it would trigger the whole verse in context of Deuteronomy 4. And this is very interesting. Do not say in your heart, this Deuteronomy 9.4, do not say in your heart when Yahweh your God has driven them out before you. So when you get into the land, don't say this to yourself. Don't believe this. What is it they're going to believe that's wrong? Because of my righteousness, Yahweh has brought me in to possess this land. Soon as the Jew heard, do not say in your heart, they think what we call Deuteronomy 9.4, they go there and say the whole thing, oh, this is about righteousness. And the problem is the Jews were saying, they were tempted to say, we were so righteous, God brought us into the land. That's why it's because of us. It's because we're such good people that God saved us. Sometimes folks think like that today, self-righteousness. I'm so good, that's why God saved me. And God says, don't think in your heart that, Israel. It's because of their wickedness that I'm destroying these nations and bringing you in to the land. Not because of your righteousness. You don't have any is the point. So don't say in your heart. The heart's the location of the inner person. It's where your conviction comes from. It's where your faith comes from. Don't believe the wrong thing, that it's your righteousness. That's where he's going. Now he switches over to Deuteronomy 30. Do not say in your heart, who will go up into heaven? Who will go up into heaven? Let me read the full quote from Deuteronomy 30. I want to go back to verse 11, though, to get the context. For this commandment, which I'm commanding you today, is not too difficult for you, nor is it far from you. It is not in heaven that you should say who will go up to heaven for us and get it for us and make us hear it that we may do it. God has given them the law in Deuteronomy. He's given it through Moses. Later we hear it's through angels who gave it to Moses. But Moses has the law. He gives it to the people. God has come down to them in a sense and given them the word. They can't say and make an excuse, right? They can't say, oh, I'm a victim. I'm a victim, God. You didn't give me the law and I couldn't go up to heaven to get it. It's your fault. No, God says, don't make that excuse. Don't say later who will go up to heaven for us and get it and make us hear it that we may do it. You've been given the law. Don't say that. They didn't have to work to get God's word from him. He did all the work of giving them the law. He did the work of giving them his revelation. Daniel Block again. He says, For the Israelites of Moses' day to learn the will of Yahweh required no effort at all. For Yahweh had freely and graciously revealed his will. Indeed, to have commissioned agents to go and fetch a word from God, either from heaven or from some far off land, would have been an act of unbelief and a repudiation of the grace already received. In other words, if they said, oh, yeah, there's the law, but we can't find it. You know, Moses gave it to us, but we're going to have to do the work ourselves and go find out what the law is. That's unbelief. That's rejecting God's word and saying, we'll make our own way. That's why Paul's using this verse. He's making an analogy. Under the old covenant, you need to accept the will of God. You need to accept his word, and you're called to live it out according to God's word. What does he tell us in the new covenant? Christ has come. Christ has said, have faith in me, and you will receive my righteousness. You will be forgiven of your sins. Your slate will be wiped clean. You will stand before God based on Christ's righteousness. So Paul makes this analogy. He says, don't say like Moses, and people were saying to Moses, I need to go to heaven to find the law. Don't say that. And he says, that is to bring Christ down. He's making a comparison. This is the way, again, rabbis argue. It's a type of argument. And he's saying, just like the Israelites didn't need to go to heaven to receive God's word, 
You don't say to yourself, I've got to make my own way to heaven. That's how we would describe it today. Don't go around thinking you're going to make your own way to heaven. It's based on my good deeds. I will make my, you've got your way. We've, I've heard this before. You've heard this before. You've got your beliefs. You've got your way. I've got my beliefs. I've got my way. I'm on a different path. Well, there's only one true path. Everything else is a path to hell. One true path is through Christ. So Paul is saying, under the new covenant, the people of God are those who have faith in Christ as Savior. They do not pridefully say, I will go up to heaven and bring Christ down. In other words, reject Christ and find another way to bring the Savior down. That's ridiculous. That's unbelief. Or, who will go down into the abyss? Again, quoting Deuteronomy here, verse 13. Deuteronomy verse 13 sounds a little different, but it is the same. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us and get it for us and make us hear it, that we may do it. The abyss in Greek is a word that just means a deep, dark space. It could be the tomb. It could be where these angels are locked away until the end times. It's just a dark hole with no bottom. And that's what they thought the ocean was. Just a dark place. Who wants to go in the ocean? It's, it's like in Jonah, where it'll just take you down to the bottom, the deep depths. So when Paul puts in this word abyss, he's getting the same idea here. He's saying, don't say who's going to go up to heaven and make their own path to heaven, or who's going to go down and somehow raise the dead to prove that they've done something. You don't need to go to the netherworld. You don't need to go to the dead and raise it. Christ, Paul says, has already done it. Look, he says, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. He's making an analogy. He's not saying Moses was talking about Christ. He's talking about the law of God and Deuteronomy. But Paul compares it. He says, look, God told them not to go searching down in some deep, dark holes for the word of God as assuming that they're going to hear from God there. Well, that's like people today working their own way of salvation, saying they're going to bring Christ up from the dead. Essentially rejecting Christ. What they were doing is rejecting Christ. They were saying, we'll make our own way to heaven. And we don't need this resurrection stuff. We don't need this resurrection of Christ stuff. We could basically do whatever we want, including raise the dead, right? We have these Jewish exorcists that can raise the dead. Big deal. We don't want to hear about Christ being raised from the dead. But the point is, why are you trying to do the things that Christ has already done? He's brought the message down from heaven. He's come from heaven to give us the life-saving gospel. He died, was in the dark place, the abyss, and was raised from the dead. Why would you want to try to reenact all that Christ has done and go back through that? You can't. It's ridiculous. MacArthur says men do not have to ascend or descend to find the truth. Because God's way of salvation had already been clearly and abundantly revealed. Don't think these things in your heart. In other words, there's no need for you to work for anything God has done at all. Don't try to be your own savior. Don't try to be your own savior. Don't try to obey the law for salvation and say somehow you're making yourself the Messiah. If you believe in your works for salvation, you're saying that Christ has done nothing. You're saying Christ has done nothing because it's either all of Christ or it's all of you. And we know the Bible says it's not all of you. It's thinking that you can go up to heaven and get a message from God. That's how false teaching cults start, right? 
God spoke to me and he told me there's another way. There's another way. Come out to this place, this farm, and we'll start a cult. And we'll get people believing there's another way. Because I heard a message from God. That's a message from Satan masquerading as an angel of light. God says, I've sent my son with a message. You don't need to try to come up and get another message. He is the message. Only God can give the message of salvation. Only God can raise the dead is the point. Now, it's complex, I admit, because the way that they're arguing and the way that Paul brings these verses forward, he's not reinterpreting them. He's just making an analogy. But the point comes down to who are you, O man, to come up with your own way of salvation? Who are you to think you can go up to heaven and bring the sun down? Who are you to think you can go to Sheol and bring the sun up? That is ridiculous. You can't add anything to Christ's work. You cannot complete the work of Christ. You don't add one cent to what he's done. He's already done it before you were even born. How are you going to add to his work? The Bible says it is finished. It is over. All you need to do is have faith in Christ. That's it. Pray that God would change your heart so that you could have faith. Christ comes fully to save us all the way to do the complete work of salvation. Yet, many reject him. Many reject this gospel. Many do not listen to this message. That's why Paul is writing it here, because people had rejected it. They reject the free gift of salvation in Christ, and instead they trust in themselves. They think they can do it better than God. They reject the one true king and a savior in hopes of making themselves a king and a savior. I'm going to make myself a king by obeying perfectly and having it my way. They're like the ancient tyrant Sisyphus in Greek mythology who every day was supposed to roll a boulder up the mountain and every day it would roll back on him and he would wake up the next day into eternity doing this over and over. That's what it's like trying to obey the law for your righteousness. The person who works for a salvation based on his own obedience is shooting himself in the foot because he's so focused on the false gospel. He's so invested. He's pouring all of his life into that that he misses the truth when it comes by. He's focused elsewhere on himself. Okay, number three, the third way that the Old Testament teaches us here is that we ought to believe in Christ and confess him. Believe in Christ and confess him. Paul told us what not to think, what not to say in your heart. The righteousness of faith says, don't think you can be your own savior. But here's what it does say. But what does it actually say, Paul says in verse 8? What does it say? It says the word is near you. Deuteronomy 30, 14. The word is near you. To the Israelites, Moses is saying, God's word is close to you. You don't have to go anywhere to get it. It's right here. I'm preaching it to you, Moses is saying. I'm preaching the word to you. It's near you. It's close to you. This is the preached word, not the written word. Different, different Greek word. This is rhema, more the spoken word, the preached word. The logos usually is the written word, but they can be interchangeable in the Bible. The word is near you. Don't make excuses. It's right there. You're hearing it. It's right there on the tip of your tongue. It's in your mouth. The word of God is being proclaimed among the people. Don't make excuses. It's right there, Moses is saying. They don't have to work to find it. That would be impossible. No, the, God, the message from God is accessible. It's clear. It's in your mouth, he says, and it's in your heart. Again, 
quoting from Moses. Moses is saying, the word, you don't have to go look for it. You don't have to go down to Sheol. You don't have to go up to heaven. It's right here among us. It's being proclaimed. It's, it's in your mouth, emphasizing that it's a preached word. It's in your heart, meaning that the law of God, the word of God, is to be believed in your heart. Now, Paul makes the analogy. That is the word of faith, which we are preaching. So just like in those days, Moses proclaimed the will of God to the people. He proclaimed the word of God. They couldn't make an excuse. They were to confess it with their mouth and believe it with their heart. It's the same with the gospel message under the new covenant. There's no looking for your own way of salvation. There's no making your own path to God. There's no trying to be righteous before him on your own grounding. It's already been done. It's called the gospel of faith in Christ alone. The gospel which says, have faith in Christ as Savior. That's what's being preached. That's what's being preached. That's what should be preached from every pulpit in the world. It's not always. That's what I'm preaching today from this text. That's what we do when we go evangelize. We tell them the gospel. We don't tell them, oh, just be a good person. Just be a good person. It'll all turn out just fine. No, we tell them you're a sinner. This is the bad news is you're a sinner. You're not righteous. You'll never be righteous unless you have faith in Christ. And in that case, it's not based on anything you do, but what he has done. He's the king. He's the savior. He is the perfect atonement that does not require any of your impure works. He's writing to these Roman Christians. He's saying both Jew and Gentile have heard the gospel proclaimed to them. Their only response is to believe. That's it. God's way of salvation is through faith. It's through your heart, believing in your mouth, confessing that he is the Savior, that he is the Son of God, that he is the King, that he is the way of salvation. It's not a command to obey the Mosaic law. That's not the gospel. It's a command to believe in the Savior. What the law pointed to, the end of the law, the completion of the law is Christ. That's the gospel message. The free gift of his perfect son. You don't have to work for it at all. You just believe. You believe. You put your trust in him. Belief isn't just, oh yeah, he existed. Belief isn't, oh yeah, I believe what the Bible says. No, belief is you climb into this thing. You get into Christ's arms and now he carries you. You trust in him. Whatever happens in my life, it's his and if I'm going to be saved, it must be based on him, not on me. Stop trying to work for something that can never be done. It can't be done. You're shooting yourself in the foot thinking you could be good enough to get into heaven. Or mixing your works with Christ's atonement. It's the same kind of thing. I'll conclude with Isaiah 5.1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. You want to find righteousness? Listen to me, God says, who seek Yahweh. If you want to find God, you want to find righteousness, Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Christ. Look to Yahweh. Look to God. He has the way of salvation. Don't look to yourself. Look to the one who made you. The one who formed you. The one who created you. I pray that if you're hearing that today, you've either already done this or you are doing it now. Or you soon will as you think about this sermon. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your lovely gospel, for your wonderful gospel, for 
everything that you are and everything that you've done for us. Help us as believers to remember the way of salvation. Sometimes we can believe it and, and come to Christ and then we get muddled in our head what the gospel is. And we tell people the wrong things. Help believers to have a pure gospel that they proclaim. And we also pray, Lord, that you would bring unbelievers to saving faith just as we heard through the preaching of your word, through the proclamation of the gospel, just as we heard in those testimonies earlier. You would use this church, the people here, what's in their mouth and what's in their heart to proclaim that truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.